Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Welcome on The Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And on tonight's episode, we're going to continue our off-season preview series by looking at the position players, including the catchers, infielders, and outfielders in the Orioles organization right now, who could factor into the Major League roster next year, where the team may look to improve, and other topics to discuss concerning the current roster, as well as additions that could be made over the off-season. We'll also get into the reported addition of Cody Assey to the Major League coaching staff and what his role might mean for the Orioles going forward. But first, let's just start off with the number two position in your scorecard, and that is catcher. Adley Rutzman emerged this year as what looks to be a true franchise cornerstone player, basically being one of the best catchers in baseball from the time that he got hot around late June, early July through the end of the season doing well on both sides of the ball. He was recently named a Gold Glove finalist, or excuse me, a Silver Slugger finalist. Many thought he should have been named a Gold Glove finalist, despite the fact he did not make his major league debut until well into May. So, Bob, I'll start with you here. You know, Rusman had been the best prospect in the game leading up to this season. We knew that the talent level for him to make an impact was there, but it's no longer just conjecture. It's no longer just prospect you know, forecasting. Adley Rutzman came up to the major leagues this year. There was a remarkable difference in how the Orioles played after he arrived and their pitching staff took a noticeable bump. It's clear that this guy is going to be a franchise player as long as he can stay healthy. Yeah, that certainly seems to be the case. Obviously he had a bit of an adjustment period and then was one of the best catchers in baseball, maybe only behind JT Real Muto and maybe one or two other guys up there with them. But and apparently, according to the article on Fangraphs last week, he still has to learn how to hit uh, velocity up in the zone. So once he figures that out, it's over. And if he can hit from the right side of the plate against lefties, he might you know, be Barry Bonds. But it's, it's interesting because obviously what he does well is pretty obvious. Calls a great game. He's a great framer. He's in the 84th percentile, has quick pop time to second base, a strong arm, even has league average speed as a catcher. Doesn't chase pitches, doesn't really swing and miss much. He walks one of the top 5% of players in baseball, strikes out very little compared to the rest of the major leagues. But interestingly, he only hit the ball hard 31%, or he's in a 31st percentile for hard hit percentage, I should say. And same with average exit velocity. So he didn't really hit the ball as hard as you would expect, as especially us watching him come up and just absolutely demolish the ball left and right in the minor leagues. So 
you know, as soon as that part of his game translates as well, I think he's just going to continue to improve. Obviously, he'll have his slumps where the league's adjusting to what he's doing, but I think it's pretty obvious he's a cornerstone player for this franchise, you know, as long as he is in Baltimore. And as soon as the World Series is over and the Orioles make their first big move of the offseason, which, as we all know, is uh, picking up the option on Jordan Lyles, innings eater himself, hopefully, and I'm begging this organization to please announce the Adley Rutschman extension. Like, you're coming off a season that no one expected. What, what did I predict? 73 or 77 wins. And I, honestly, I thought I was, I was way too way too high of a number there. But yet this team went goes on and wins, you know, the 83 games. And it was in a playoff race down to the very end of the season. So, like, Adley has a case. He won't win it. But he also has a case to be a legitimate case to be the AL Rookie of the Year winner this year. So, like, I don't know exactly what this front office means when they say it's liftoff from here. Uh, and we're going to invest significantly into this roster. But whatever that means, I think you have to start this offseason with a big bang announce the Adley Rutschman extension, and then you can hit the pitching market and say, look, we locked down our guy. This is what he does behind the plates, and you're going to love our left field wall, so just sign the dotted line. But, like, I mean, the numbers speak for themselves. He was, if my numbers were my counting was correct, he was 50-34. and 34. The Orioles were 50-34 and 34 when Rutschman started behind the plate. And just overall in the league, he was second F war behind, Bob mentioned JT Real Muto. That was it. Uh, he was... Rutschman was 5.3, Real Muto was 6.4, and Rutschman had 92 fewer plate appearances and 26 fewer games played. Highest walk rate in the majors among catchers, uh, third in WRC+, sixth in OPS, fifth in weighted on base average, among one of the best defenders in the league. And I think, arguably, Adley Rutschman is one of the best catchers in all of baseball. Like He could solidify himself as the top catcher in all of baseball in the next year or two. And so I... I you know, catchers typically reach their peak later in their career, but you really didn't see that much of a big adjustment with Rutschman this year. He still put up, what, 35 doubles, which was an Orioles record. I mean, an OPS over 800. You mentioned the power and how hard he hits the ball. I, you know, I imagine he's going to hit lefties a little bit better next year, but also the power, like, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw more power from him next year, but at the same time, I'm not going to be mad at all if he's, a 15 home run a year guy who puts up 35 plus doubles in an OPS over 800 every single year. What he brings behind the plate, what he brings relationship wise to his pitching staff, generational talent, lock the man down. Yeah, completely agree. And I think that if he does end up settling in that 15 to 20 homer range in his prime, but he's able to still give you an AP or an OPS over 800 every year, and he's able to call the game, handle the pitching staff the way he does. And I think the other thing too is I'm curious to see. If some of the rule changes coming into effect next season put more importance on the run game, because it is going to probably be the change the way that we view some catchers, but I don't have any concerns about Rutschman. I think he can handle it. You know, I think he showed it in the minor leagues. I think that he showed this year in the major leagues that he can handle the run game. So if you start to see steals creep up and now all of a sudden we're looking for catchers to be able to throw runners out. Um, at a higher rate than we have in the last few years. Rutzman's going to be ahead of a lot of other catchers in the game in that regard. Yeah, he's certainly got the arm. We've seen him make plenty of – he's just got that that baseball IQ. Like, he just instinctively knows what to do, when to do it. But, yeah, back to the power department, I could see him settling into, like, a 20, maybe 25 home run type of guy with 30-plus doubles a year. And like Vivek said, you know, you're not going to sacrifice the approach that he has 
for ex- a little bit extra power, especially when you got other guys like Gunner and everybody coming up through the system, anyone they acquire or sign, you got Mountcastle, et cetera, et cetera. And to me, I almost feel like rookies and like less experienced players get a little bit of disrespect from umpires as they get used to their specific zone and their approach at the plate. So I feel like just kind of like, I remember, I think I remember correctly that Nick Markakis kind of had a similar thing where he was getting, you know, some borderline calls not going his way early in his career. And then that turned around as his career went on. And I just, I could see that being the case with Adley. I could see him being like a Juan Soto, like just a walk machine and, and striking out less. Maybe he has a year where he walks more and he strikes out. And maybe that allows the power. If he can also at the same time be more aggressive with pitches inside his zone, then maybe some extra power could come that way. I instantly thought of Julio Rodriguez at the beginning of this year. You know, some insane number of like pitches outside of the strike zone that were called strike three on him. It's like, well, of course he's striking out at a higher rate. He's doing what he's supposed to do, not swing at junk. And these umpires were, uh, were calling it. But um, yeah, it's with Rutschman, you know, in the framing aspect too, like, if robo umps are coming in, we're using the automatic ball strike system now. If that's going to be the thing, and you don't have to worry about that aspect of your game as much, and you can focus more on your pop time, getting the ball to second base. You know, he's he's wild sometimes getting it down to second base. It's not always clean and perfect, but we know how good he can be. We've seen it down there in the minor league. So, yeah, you focus more on that, and just this season as a whole. Like my thing with Rutschman is how impressive those final numbers were, and as a catcher. Like you're not just sitting there and learning, all right, getting your book down on the different pitches you're facing. Like he's got to create this mental book and a physical book on every hitter that he's going to face this year, learning how to call games against each hitter, learning the strengths and weaknesses of all these guys he's facing on a nightly basis, helping out this extremely young, inexperienced pitching staff, which we saw take tremendous leaps with him behind the plate. And so for him to put up all those offensive numbers while also learning everything else that catchers have to do in the game and for him to do it at, at such an elite level at such a young age. I mean, I, I felt like when he was coming up through the system, we kind of overlooked Adley for a while there because like, what else, what more can we say about this guy? Um, and like Zach mentioned in the intro, like there's no more of, man, he's going to be amazing. He's going to be so good. He's going to be so great. Look at all these great scouting reports. Like we've seen it. He's proving it. He is one of the greatest in baseball right now. And he's played in what, 113 games. That's it. That's a great point because just think about all the information he had to download in such a quick time while at the same time trying to prove that he's ready to get to the major league. So, you know, this offseason, hopefully, you know, knock on wood, a healthy offseason, healthy spring training, just the comfortability of knowing, okay, this is my job. I know this is what I have to do. I've done it. That's again, that's probably a good reason why catchers have a little bit of a later development curve. Uh, So I feel like he's just going to get more and more comfortable and, yeah, I don't think we've seen the best of Adley Rushman yet, that's for sure. Completely agree, and I want to bring this point up because I think we're going to come back to it a lot as we start to talk about the infielders and outfielders, and that is plate approach and swing decisions. That was something we noted a lot in 2021 with the Orioles' farm system, and while you could point to it, there were no signs of it at the major league level. Um, so there was this philosophy that you were seeing in the minor leagues that was not translating to the major leagues. And it didn't seem at that point like it was going to start translating anytime soon. Lo and behold, Adley Rutzman gets to the majors this year and not only is following that plan, but seems to be taking it to another level. I don't know that we're going to have a prospect in the coming years. And I could be wrong. And I hope I'm wrong. 
But I don't know that we're going to have a prospect in the coming years debut with the Orioles and put up the strikeout to walk numbers that Rutzman did where he strikes out less than 20% of the time and walks nearly 14% of the time, basically never chases a pitch out of the strike zone. And I think like you both said, the more he's in the league, the more respect he's going to get from umpires on those close pitches. So next year, would I be shocked if his walk rate goes up despite no change in approach at all? Absolutely not. Yeah, it's interesting. Like you say, all the guys that were here, you know, when this front office took over, when this player development program was put into place, the, if you look at the chase percentage on Baseball Savant, the top five guys for the Orioles are Gunnar Henderson, Adley Rutschman, Tyler Nevin, Taren Navra, Taren Vavra, excuse me, and Ryan McKenna. So the top five are all guys that were built even, you know, through the system. And obviously there's even guys that are coming up in the next year or two or three and so on for who knows how long this uh, this will keep going, but they're they're not going to be any different. So, yeah, as that continues to roll over and you lose some of the guys that chase anything, uh, Ryan Mountcastle, who I still like and I think will bounce back next year, but I think you're going to see an entirely different offensive profile as a team moving forward starting next year. Mm-hmm. They're all coming, and you've got guys like Colton Kowser. We know the strikeouts were – he struck out a lot more than I think a lot of people wanted to see him strike out last year, but he has still had a tremendous walk rate and he still has a tremendous eye at that plate. Um, but you've got guys like, you know, Colton Cowser going to come up to the system and some of these other top prospects, the guys who I think we're tagging as guys who are going to stick around this organization, the walk, the strikeout guys, Jordan Westberg, that's, that could be a different topic about whether he stays or goes, which we'll dive into, but he's another one who should be, if he's not traded, up in the majors very soon next year. He's a guy who can draw a fair share of walk. And I think the strikeouts were respectable for him last year. So yeah, you're, it's going to be a whole philosophical change. And we starting to see a little bit last year and next year, as more of these guys come up, we're going to see more of it. And I think some of those offensive woes we saw last year with this team will, will start to turn around noticeably next season. Yeah. I think you have to have less prolonged slumps when, you know, instead of having a bunch of guys that will swing at the first pitch, swing at anything thrown their way. And obviously, when a guy like that gets hot, it's incredibly fun to watch. Just Austin Hayes' first two months of the season, and Ryan Mountcastle, whenever he has a, a random hot month, uh, usually in the summertime, you know, it's fun. But with these guys, like with these approaches like Adley and Vavra and Gunner, I mean, even if they're slumping, they'll still be able to work a walk, work a good plate appearance. And, and that should help, you know. <laughs> have some of these offensive wars that we saw last year, like Nick said. I think with that, we'll actually transition over to Mountcastle before we get into the rest of the infield. Because it feels like Mountcastle, depending on what numbers you want to look at, either had a very unlucky season, a kind of disappointing season, or perhaps a little bit of both. On one hand, 22 home runs with the wall moving back, a decline from last year, posts a 728 OPS, strikes out over 25% of the time, with a walk rate of little, just a little bit over 7%. On the other hand, when you look at his percentile rankings over at Baseball Servant, you see that he hit the ball hard consistently. Average exit velocity, he was in the 88th percentile. Maximum exit velocity, the 81st percentile. Hard hit rate, 82%. So there, that's just a snapshot. But you dig into the numbers and you realize that he hit the ball hard this year, often was punished um, – Part of it was the wall, but the wall moving back really does not tell the whole story with him. So I want to start with Nick here. 
I think that we've known for a long time that with Mountcastle, there's going to be give and take. You're going to have to live with high strikeouts and probably a lower than ideal walk rate to go with the power. In 2021, we saw that power. Last year, we didn't necessarily see it. Who do you think the real Ryan Mountcastle is at this point? I honestly believe that he can be somewhere in the middle there, right? 33 home runs last year, 22 this year. You know, the walk rate still remained consistent, 7%. Strikeouts dropped down just a tick. You know, I, I just think when you look at, you mentioned the baseball savant numbers. That's a lot of bright red. They got a lot of bright, bright red on that baseball savant page. And you break it down by pitch. I mean, this guy's expected numbers and, you know, take them for what you will. But his expected numbers so far exceed, out, exceeded his actual numbers. Like on fastballs, he had a 240 average. Expected batting average is 289. Against breaking pitches, 17 points higher. I mean, this the slugging percentage, expected slugging percentage, like 150 points higher than his actual slugging percentage against fastballs. Weighted on base average, all of it is just up 70, 80, 100 points. I, I think, you know, maybe, yeah, there was a little bit of adjustment there with the wall, but I think there was a lot of bad luck. Um, you know, it's you can't say for certain that he's going to break out and be that 33, put up 35 home runs next year and really break out again. But I think somewhere in between those rookie level stats and this past season, you can find a happy medium there with Mount Castle. And I'm, I'm willing to bet the farm on Mount Castle as far as him being able to turn those around. Cause when you look at those numbers, you look at those expected numbers versus actual numbers, something's got to give there. Something's got to break right for him next year. It, it can't be all that bad luck like, for two straight years in a row. Completely agree. I'm still very high on Mount Castle. I think he'll be fantastic five or six hitter in this lineup right in the middle of it. I mean, like Nick detailed, just the bad luck and maybe not all of it's bad luck, but I do think he's just a pure hitter. Like if you give him a bat, he's going to hit, I feel like, and to hit the ball that hard, that consistently. And he walked the same amount as Cedric Mullins did last year. So it's not like, you know, obviously the last two years you've seen him not walk at all in the beginning of the season and then kind of start to walk more as the season goes on. So Sure, there could be some adjustments there. He swings at basically everything, but that's because he knows he can hit basically anything really hard. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think a lot of it has to do with the deadening, deadening of the ball, and especially to center and right center field where, you know, in 2021, that's where he really showed off that impressive power to hit 33 home runs like that. I think just that slight less carry in the ball in that direction, plus if he pulls the ball, he's got to hit it a lot harder, a lot farther to get it out in Camden Yards. Maybe that messed with his head a little bit, but I still think he's just some minor adjustments away from getting back to the guy that he showed he could be in 2021. And he's still pre-arbitration, so he's he's not going anywhere. He's he's basically dirt cheap. What league minimum is what, 900000 one million. Um and he plays, he's very improved at first base. So it's not like he's, you know, a guy out there that's causing you any runs on defense. He was one of the better first basemen in the American League, I would say. And yeah, I'm confident that he will be a big part of at least the 2023 team. Once he hits arbitration, if the struggles continue, maybe he reassess. But for right now, I think he's just, he's locked and loaded at first base for next year. Yeah, I agree. I think that with the needs that the Orioles have this offseason, First base really should not be an area of focus for them. And I would rather count on Malcastle bouncing back than I would to go out and put dollars or prospects in a trade towards improving at the first base position when I can improve other areas of the team. 
and I agree. I think that his defense is actually a very underrated part of his game. And now that he actually can focus on first base, which he has not really been able to do up until this past season, because it was, well, can he play third? Can he play left field? Um, at one point, he was playing first base and left field kind of on an alternating basis. So this year, he had the opportunity to just focus solely on first base. And I think you saw a lot of improvements, and I expect him to continue getting better. And offensively, I, I hope there's a happy medium, and I hope there's a happy medium with another guy we're going to talk about a little bit later on this show in Cedric Mullins, where maybe though Malcastle is not quite the 2021 Ryan Malcastle, at least in terms of home run power, year in and year out but everything else can be a little bit better. Yeah. And I was trying to find this. Uh, I saw it on a Reddit a couple of weeks ago and uh, see it's a Twitter account at O's analytics at O's underscore analytics. And he's got a couple of small threads here on some guys, DL hall and signs on dare, but he had one on Ryan Mountcastle. I think that like started his account. And one of the last tweets he had here in this thread looked at the end of the season. He mentioned that slider low and away pitchers just kept feeding him and Mountcastle just kept swinging. And so like, if he's going to keep swinging, why would major league pitcher change the approach? Just keep throwing it. He kept doing it, but he he pulled up like the month by month, the swing percentage and the chase percentage and Mountcastle in September, October, he ended the season significant decrease in swing percentage and chase rate, like significant drop in chase percentage over the last month plus of the season up from like almost 50% chase rate in July down to about 30% in September and October. Uh, and I noticed that led to a 10.2% walk rate and a 353 weighted on base average for Mountcastle. So uh, shout out to Addo's analytics on Twitter there for, for that information. I think that's huge. If, if that is a trend that Mountcastle is trending towards the right direction and we see more of that in 2023, then yeah, that's, that is going to be huge. And maybe, maybe that breakout is there. So we'll focus now on the rest of the infield. And I'm actually going to start with the big story of today, which is congratulations to Ramon Arias for winning his first career gold glove award. He wins it at third base, beating out two better known finalists in Matt Chapman and Jose Ramirez of the Blue Jays and Cleveland Guardians, respectively. This is probably not something that any of us can say we saw coming into this year. In fact, we didn't even know where Arias was going to play regularly. He had just 10 career games at the major league level at third base coming into this year. And although he played in fewer than 100 games there this year, the defensive metrics were very positive on him. So I'll start with Bob here. Arias winning the Gold Glove Award. I'll actually start with Nick, but Arias winning the Gold Glove Award here. Do you think that um, maybe this increases his value a little bit going into next season, whether that's as a bench player for the Orioles, someone that maybe starts the year, in the opening day or in the lineup consistently, or perhaps it's a trade piece. I have no idea. This is the most difficult part of this infield puzzle. I think, because what do you do with him? Like, do you, do you trade him? I think this should increase his trade value, right? You got a gold glove winner um, and say you know, what you will about the gold glove awards. I know when, you know, Rutschman and Mateo weren't nominated and you saw some of the other nominees, you say these awards are kind of a joke. And then Ramon Arias wins it. We're like, heck yeah, Ramon Arias, Gold Glove winner. But I, I mean, the numbers don't lie. He was very good and he definitely deserved that award over someone like Matt Chapman, who would have gotten it just over name recognition, I think. But I'm thinking this probably just leads to uh, increasing the trade value, hopefully. And I kind of imagine like 
how do the Orioles view Jordan Westberg? I mean, do they think he can be fit in there and give you more offense and play just as good defense over at third base? Um, you know, I, I think he was always an Ramon Arias was always an underrated piece when they claimed him off waivers from St. Louis. But at the same time, like, is this peak Ramon Arias? I don't know. Or is there another gear? I, I don't really know. But I just look at teams like Seattle and Miami, like two teams, for example, off the top of my head that can win now who need offensive help. Maybe they need that batter Ramon Arias, and he brings that glove with them too. And maybe you can trade him, package him with some prospects and get some pitching. Um, you know, you don't have to trade Ramon Arias just for, you know, double A or single A or DSL prospects anymore. You can trade him for a legitimate, as part of a package, to get other legitimate major league pieces. Uh, so I, I'm curious to see where the Orioles decide to go here with him. Yeah. And the emergence of Gunnar Henderson at the end of last year, where he's yeah. firmly established, he will be on the left side of the infield pretty much every day, starting next year, opening day, whether it's third base or he moves back over the shortstop. And maybe that's where you can get, you know, Urias to continue to be on the team. But I just feel like, I don't know, with all the guys coming up, I th- feel like his trade value, I kind of agree with AJ here in the chat that his trade value will never be higher. You, mean, you don't want to relegate a guy like that to a bench bat unless he's like your primary DH. But why would you put your primary DH as a guy that just won the gold glove at third base after only ever playing 10 games at that position coming into the year, which I think was Sarah Lang's pointed out was like the fewest amount of games played at a position. I don't know. It was some kind of record. But I mean... If you're going to, I feel like they're going to keep one of Jorge Mateo and Ramon Urias. I feel like Urias has more trade value. And I feel like Mateo has more value to the team as a bench player if that's the route it ends up going. Uh, and I think if you're going to have Ramon on the bench majoritively of the time, then Jordan Westberg's right there. If he's only going to play, you know, 80, 100 games a year, then why not go with the prospect who has a little more upside, more control when you can get some trade value from your eyes and thank you for your time over the rough stretch, but uh, good luck in the next step. That's, that's what I would do. Yeah. I've got Sarah Lang's tweet right here. Ramona Rios had 10 career games at third base entering 2022. That's the fewest entering that season, the gold glove winning position for any non rookie excluding pitchers and considering all outfielders is one position due to award history. So, also, it should be noted, Arias is the first Oriole to win a gold glove. Cincinnati Machado won at third base back in 2015. Now, here's where I think it gets really difficult if you're trying to break down the Orioles' infield depth chart for next year. You have three really good infielders on the left side of your infield in Ramon Arias, Jorge Mateo, who should have been a gold glove finalist, um, and Gunnar Henderson, who... The three of us, you know, know what Henderson can do defensively. He's very good at shortstop. He's very good, if not elite, at third base. And he's obviously, I think, has the best bat of the three right now. So someone's going to have to move to the bench or get traded to make room for Gunnar Henderson. We know that that's going to be the case. Or someone's going to have to play a lot of second base to make room for Gunnar Henderson. So just how do you solve this puzzle? That's the question I didn't want to answer. <laughs> I don't. Uh, like I, that's the only part about all of this. Like it's all good problems to have. We're talking yeah. about do the Orioles bench a Gold Glove winning third baseman right now, uh, or do they trade him? 
Like this is just ridiculous conversation right now. But I mean, it's 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 so difficult because at the same time, like, are the Orioles going to legitimately be in on? I don't I hate to bring up the name, but like, are they going to be in on Carlos Correa? Like, I, I don't see Trey Turner being an option, but are they going to be in on one of those a big time third baseman or a shortstop in free agency? Like, could that be the case, or do you roll with an infield of Westberg, Gunner, Mountcastle, and then some combo of Jorge Mateo, don't forget Taron Vavra still on this roster as well, uh, or like some free agent. Do you bring in, uh, I've seen Jace Peterson's name thrown out uh, at a couple different places. Like, do you bring in a Jace Peterson or Jace Peterson type free agent to help shore up the infield? If so, how does this change everything? But, you know, it's that, that's Vivek's comment there. Like, do you try Ramon Arias at second base? You have Westberg, Gunner on the left side of the infield, Ramon Arias at second base, Mount Castle at first. I don't hate that either. It's like, no matter which way you go, which stance you take, I mean, it's like my response is like, cool, yeah, I like it. Let's go with it. I mean, I just don't see any like really terrible options the Orioles have here. At the same time, you could bring him back and, you know, expect like plan on playing him four days a week, three day, three or four days a week. The Orioles are not going to be as healthy as they were, at least on a position player side in 2022 moving forward most likely they were very lucky in that regard so you know he could you know you get have him like a dj lemayhu starting where is he going to play well he plays 135 games all over the place because hey it's not a bad problem to have a really quality player on your bench on your bench or you know sked penciled as a part-time player uh especially when he's not too expensive and you can always his trade value will remain high for a few years so they could do pretty much anything they want, and that's why this offseason is, off is going to be pretty exciting. We haven't even really scratched the surface on this discussion yet because you look at the players who ended the season at AAA, Connor Norby, Joey Ortiz, Jordan Westberg. Um, we know that Ortiz probably going to be added to the 40-man roster this offseason. He's Rule 5 eligible. Westberg, I don't think, has anything left to show at AAA. Norby had such a meteoric rise this season and seemingly got better at every level as he went from Aberdeen to Bowie to Norfolk. I don't know out of those three, it would seem like Westberg is the most likely to be an option on opening day. Maybe Ortiz and Norby get a little more time in AAA, but it feels like at some point all three of these guys are going to be banging down the door um, in 2023. So, Bob, I'll, I'll start with you here. How, how do you handle them and do you think that there's a scenario where all three are still in the organization when opening day rolls around i think it's possible i definitely think it's possible i think it's most likely one of them will be dealt but i do think it's possible especially if they trade one or both of mateo or urias and let's say that they see Vavramore as a backup outfielder than a starting second baseman you know i feel like Look what the Astros did with Kyle Tucker uh, while Elias was with them. I mean, he was, I remember in fantasy baseball for years, like, why isn't he's raking in AAA? He needs full time in the majors. And it seemed like he was never getting that chance. And now he got that chance. Obviously, he's a star in the majors and a potential World Series MVP after hitting two home runs in game one. So I think we could see some, uh, you know, it, it might be crazy. It might sound crazy. Some uh, irrational Orioles fans calling for guys to be called up to the majors from the minors, despite continuing to play well down there just because there isn't room at the moment. Um, and yeah, and again, it's a great problem to have. 
Um, I don't know. I would probably trade Urias. I'd have Mateo on the bench. I'd have Ortiz up around midseason. I'd have, oh my God, I'd have no idea. <laughs> this is, they don't pay me <laughs> to do this. I'm just going to react to what they do. I'm not telling them what to do. Yeah, I just think, like, looking at the major league guys, Ramon Arias, I think, is the wild card. Do you trade him? Do you keep him? Do you move him? What do you do? And same with the prospects. I think Jordan Westbrook is the wild card because I remember before the season started, it was every single outlet wrote the article, one prospect to be traded from each team. And everyone had Jordan Westbrook for the Orioles, which I get it. Like, that's he's was close to the majors. You had Gunner. Uh, you, you've got, well, you, we didn't know then, but now you've got Jackson Holiday in the mix as well. You've got such so many middle infielders already and guys like Connor Norby, like you mentioned, who have risen to the, the top of this prospect list. Like I, I get why trading Westberg would be an option and you could certainly package Westberg, a major league piece, Austin Hayes, and another, you know, top 30 prospect for a really good pitcher. Right. But at the same time, if you think Westberg is an upgrade over Ramon Arias, then he should enter spring training with every chance to win the starting third base job or whatever position you think he excels best at. That's the hardest part too, is like, we don't know how the organization grades these guys out defensively. I think that would be clearly we don't because we're here call up Jemai Jones. His defense is terrible. No, it's not. It, it, it was uh, Taryn Vavra. Like we he never plays second base seemingly. Um, so clearly they highly value def- defense that we know they value that defensive positional flexibility, but being able to play elite defense at your position is very key. We just don't know how the Orioles grade them out and we don't have access to any of those you know, metrics at the minor league level. So yeah, it's, it's definitely hard. All I can say right now is, you know, Westberg had a fantastic year. He's the minor league hitter of the year. Connor Norby. I think the bat is legit. Uh, what we saw from him is that's who Connor Norby is. He's not just this hitterish, a guy who just hits singles and doubles sprays the ball. He is a power hitting second baseman. Um, and Ortiz, like, I honestly just think that at this point, even though he's kind of this newer, flashier prospect toy among fans who just saw the terrible first half, kind of ignored the fact that he hasn't played much as a pro and had that major surgery, and then he comes on it strong at the end of the year, like that bet is also legit. Like we've had other Orioles prospects who play with him on a daily basis, like say the bet is very much for real. Joey Ortiz as a player is very much for real. Um, it's not just the second half surge. Let's wait and see how he does next year. Joey Ortiz is the man. Uh, and I think he is undervalued, honestly, at this point, even by us. I think he might even be too low on our list, and we have him pretty high. But you don't have to bring him up to the majors right this instant. You can wait a little bit with him as well. I think that's just all we can do right now is say where these guys are at. And like you mentioned, there's also Cesar Preto in this organization as well. So just more pieces to the puzzle. Don't roll out a uh, return of Rugnet Odor. You know, he he brought that leadership quality. No, please. I never want to hear that name again. Um, but, yeah, I, I think the team probably values Ortiz above Westberg at this point, if I had to guess. Just because, you know, the shift is being, you know, phased out. I think, obviously, Ortiz has more range, even though I think Westberg's pretty solid defensively, maybe not as much at second base. Uh, yeah, again. We know nothing, but we can speculate and uh, and use the best of our abilities to predict, which is not great. And I will say that defense is, I think, objectively the hardest thing to evaluate in baseball today because we have, at the major league level, a set of metrics available 
you know, I, I could sit here right now and lead off, read off the outs above average leaderboard for third base at Baseball Savant and tell you that Ramon Urias was tied for first in the American League with Alex Bregman. Now, can I tell you that that stat alone makes Ramon Urias a great third baseman? No, I can't. It's really hard to do that with the data we have available, and we have absolutely nothing in the minor leagues to go on as far as data is concerned. So you got to rely on the eye test. Um, and I will say, we'll talk about Taryn Vavra a little bit more with outfielders, but, you know, I, I think Orioles fans had their grudges with Brunette Odor, and certainly a lot of them were valid. But with the eye test, there was a noticeable difference trying to turn a double play when Rugnet Odor was not there this season. And when you had Taryn Vavra there, and when you experimented with Gunnar Henderson a little bit. So there just are some small, subtle techniques that I look at and I wonder, how does the organization view that? How do they value that? Joey Ortiz, though, checks off every single box um, as far as the eye test goes. And when you can actually back that up with metrics, I, I think it's all going to be very positive. I, I'll throw this out there, and I'm not putting it out there directly as a comp because I don't. three of us are not big fans of comps. But Joey Ortiz, Jeremy Pena, defensive abilities, do they seem very far off to either one of you? No, maybe back-to-back gold glove shortstops as a rookie. First time ever this year with Jeremy Pena, maybe Joey Ortiz will say, I got you. I could see it. I like it. I mean, like I said, I think I don't think we're valuing this guy high enough. I certainly don't think the industry is valuing this guy high enough. I mean, how many times have we said everything this front office says is so carefully calculated that when they speak, especially some of these guys, not Michael Elias that are in the front office, when they speak, like, I listen. A lot of it is typical in your front office jargon. Of course, you know, they're, they're not going to tell you all the secrets. But, you know, when they keep putting out certain names, especially when talking about prospects, I think this was, was it last week? After last week's show, after we were finished recording, we were trying to figure out, like, how many of these guys that Matt Blood has name dropped have disappointed so far? Like, what's his record when he calls out guys? Uh, it's, it's pretty good, right? And Joey Ortiz is one of those first guys that he definitely called out. And we're seeing that uh, play out here. So I actually love that comp and I'm, I'm my head hurts and it's not just the severe congestion I have going on right now. It, it hurts even more now with trying to think, how do we put all these pieces of this puzzle together? And well, I, we're going to be I putting think... together more pieces of the puzzle in the moment, but first a shout out to our new sponsor. DraftKings Sportsbook is coming to Maryland. It won't be long until you can bet same game parlays, money lines, props, and more with DraftKings. But you don't have to wait to get in on the action. You can enter DraftKings pick pick them free to play pool every week for a shot to win a share of fifteen thousand dollars in cash prizes. Joining a free to play pool is simple. Download the DraftKings Daily Fantasy app, select pools in the menu bar, and choose from a variety of free to play pools for a shot to win big. Soon enough, you'll be able to bet on all your favorite sports from the comfort of your own home with DraftKings Sportsbook. Download the DraftKings Daily Fantasy app and sign in using code ONTHEVERDS to enter DraftKings Pick'em Free-to-Play pool for a stop to win big. That's code ONTHEVERDS only at DraftKings. We'll move on to the outfield now where we saw some signs of change late in the year with the emergence of Kyle Stowers who was not used regularly after he was promoted from AAA Norfolk, but we still did get a decent sample size in there. And Taryn Vavra, who we talked about a little bit earlier, 
was used almost as much in the outfield as he was in the infield at his natural natural position at second base. So 15 games at second in the major leagues compared to 12 in the outfield with all but one of them coming in left field. Meanwhile, you have your three established regulars coming back as of now in Austin Hayes, Cedric Mullins, and Anthony Santander. And I do want to start with Mullins because the offseason has technically not started yet in the sense of the hot stove. Yet we're already hearing speculation about could Mullins be traded? It feels like deja vu from last season, except Mullins is not coming off a 30-30 season. He's coming off a good but not great 2022 campaign. So I'll start with Nick here. Do you buy into the idea that Mullins could be traded, or do you think that we should be penciling him him in right now as the starting center fielder for next season? If I had to bet, I would say go ahead and pencil him as a starting center fielder. I, I just I think they might have. I don't I don't want to say like they should have traded him last year at peak value, and now they've missed the boat. But I do think I don't think you're going to get a peak return for Cedric Mullins at this point after that down year. Uh, but still, like this is still a guy who plays a good defense out in center field. I do think there is still a chance for him to rebound. I mean, this could be you know kind of like a, a sophomore slump. I don't know if that was technically you know it was like his sophomore year. He's had three other stints in the major leagues before this, but it's kind of like a sophomore slump there for him maybe. And maybe he's learning and adjusting. And like right now, I I just think that you look at the speed on the base paths. He, he stole 34 bases this year compared to just 30 the year before. Like when you put his ability to get those extra base hits, the stolen bases, the defense, the low strikeout rate, it's like 18% strikeout rate, good, decent walk numbers. They're not great, but decent. I just think you put all of his skill set together. You put all those tools together. And I, I think he's a valuable piece. I think he's more valuable than Austin Hayes. I'd much rather just trade Austin Hayes at this point. And so I, I don't, don't have any issues with keeping him around on this in this organization. Yeah, I agree. I think odds are he'll be back playing center field. I don't think he should be batting leadoff anymore, especially with these high on base guys coming up. Like I said, he only walked like 7% of the time, which was down from his breakout year in 2021. But I think he'd just be a fantastic seven or eight hitter or even nine hitter to flip that lineup around uh, if he stays. But I do think there's a possibility he could go. I mean, He's got three years of control left in a quote-unquote down year. I mean, he was still good enough to show that 2021 wasn't a complete fluke. He still stole 34 bases, hit 16 home runs, had three and a half war. I mean, he's going to be relatively cheap for three years, so I feel like a team like Cleveland or Miami would be super interested in in a guy like that. And you're not going to trade him for a haul of three prospects, three or four prospects. You're going to trade him – for a guy like Pablo Lopez, Shane Bieber, he'll be involved in a deal like that, a more established presence, I would imagine. And maybe they feel like a, um, let's see, Taron Vavra and Ryan McKenna platoon in center field until Colton Kowser is ready could suffice. I don't know how comfortable I would be with that. but Or they could sign someone on a short-term deal to uh, just be a placeholder until Kowser is ready to come up. But I again, I think anything is is uh, an option right now, especially in the Southfield, like Austin Hayes, if he ever could stay healthy and not have to play through injuries, maybe he would be as good as he showed to be in the first two, two and a half months of the season. Anthony Santander looked like he was one of the few, you know, guys that 
that stuck around through the previous regime that is actually buying into the swing decisions and improving his walk rate and waiting to show off his power more than just he had before. Um, but I could see any and all of them, maybe not all of them, but I could see at least one of them traded. I would prefer Hayes as well, but uh, obviously the value is a little bit lower for him probably than the other guys. So again, super interesting as we enter this offseason, what they're going to do. The value with Mullins is still fairly high. I mean, you're looking at a player that is just hitting his first year of arbitration eligibility. And even with the down year in 2022, he was still essentially a three and a half win player in center field. Um, I think that where what my question is with him at this point is where do you see the offensive ceiling? I think we know that he's a very good center fielder with a lot of speed and excellent range. Not an ideal arm, but I think it's you know one you can live with as long as he's able to cover ground the way that he does right now. I just think that you run into that question of if his ceiling is really a 15 to 20 homer bat with not a very high on base percentage. And as Bob said, he didn't look comfortable with a leadoff hitter this year. Um, certainly not against left-handed pitching. And for as much scrutiny as Brandon Hyde's lineups were getting over the second half of the season, I actually agreed with the decision to put Mullins low in the order against left-handed pitching because his platoon splits by the second half were glaring. He was hitting right-handers disproportionately better than he was hitting lefties, and he was really struggling against lefties. So it's really about is there a happy medium offensively between 2022 and 2021? Because if there is, I actually think Cedric Mullins is a hard player to replace because Colton Cowser is going to hit, but the defense just isn't going to equal what Cedric Mullins does. And overall, I think Cowser is a fine defensive center fielder. This isn't going to be at Mullins' level. and But if the regression is a sign of things to come, then maybe you do consider a trade more seriously. And I agree with you, Bob. I think that if you do trade Mullins, you're packing packaging him into a trade to bring back a major league piece, probably specifically major league pitching, and not going after prospects. Yeah, and I mean, I don't see them signing him to an extension. So you have three arbitration years remaining. Maybe you just let it play out. Maybe trade him. Once Kowser establishes himself, and we haven't even mentioned Kyle Stowers in the mix for this outfield, so maybe he played a lot of center field uh, this past year. Maybe he's the guy until Kowser is ready. I don't know, but uh, yeah, I just I don't see them extending him, so I don't think he's going to be an Oriole for the next five to seven years, Mullins, that is. But at the same time, there's absolutely no rush. It's not like they have to trade him. If the right deal comes along, they can help him in another area and they can fill that gap, or at least they feel like they can, then maybe they do it. Yeah, I think that's the thing, too. With, we're, we're talking about trading these guys now, you know, trading Austin Hayes, trading Ramon Arias, even Cedric Mullins. Like, I think the days of trading this major league talent for low-level prospects is kind of done, unless, like Bob's mentioned a lot, you, you know, you liking the idea of picking up the option on Jordan Lyles and flipping him at the deadline, maybe for some prospects or whatever. But, you know, other than that, like, we have these major league pieces now that we can package with prospects who are in the upper levels of the minor leagues at triple A right now. And we can package these guys for other proven major league talent, which makes all this, the training process much more difficult, but much more fun to think about. But I, I think with Mullins, like if you can be a, 
you know, if you can hit 265, 270, hit 15 home runs, 30 plus doubles, steal 30 plus bases, and play that defense that he does play, like that's value. Bat him eighth or ninth in the lineup. I think that's a tremendous piece to have in this lineup when you can surround him with Adley and Gunner and hopefully Kyle Stowers, hopefully a uh, Colton Cowser at some point. But yeah, or, you know, you, you figure this out, you create this big, in my ideal situation, like Austin Hayes is traded, and then you've got. With Santander, I, I, I've got a pl- an idea with Santander as well, but you got Cedric Mullins, you bring in some free agent, you got Kyle Stowers, and then you work in Colton Kowser somewhere in there where Kowser's not playing every day, Mullins isn't playing every day, and you you get more out of Mullins. You get more out of Kowser while they try to figure all of this out as well. So I think there's these guys are versatile. These guys can do – they have complementing skill sets, I think, and it's going to make for creating these lineups on a nightly basis – I think this year, depending on which moves are made and which moves aren't made, there could be a lot of frustration with fans. But I think from an organizational standpoint, it could be a lot of fun putting together some really unique, really good lineups with these guys that have in place. Yeah, you're not going to see these guys play every single night, but it's you're going to be putting these guys in the best situation to find success. We'll go over to Anthony Santander now. This was the guy who, of the established major league hitters, seemed to be buying into the Orioles' approach of swing decisions the most is his walk rate took a sizable jump from 2021 when he walked just about a little over 5% of the time to eight and a half percent this past year. All the while his strikeouts came down from what was a high total for him of around 23% in 2021 down to just under 19% in 2022. All the while he it's 33 home runs, a career high for him. So, the change in approach paid off for Santander. And I think that it was a surprise to many, perhaps us included, that we saw Santander healthy, productive, playing the best that he had at any point in his career. And he was not traded to trade deadline. So in your guys' mind, does that mean that the Orioles really look at this lineup now and they see Anthony Santander as that one of those middle-of-the-order bats that they want to have around for at least the next year or two. I could see it, but at the same time, he's also like, he actually, I always thought he is who he is. He's going to be a league average hitter and a below average outfielder. He's actually proven to be an above average hitter. I mean, he's got a lot of red in his savant page as well, except I feel like, I don't know if I could trust him in the outfield at all. (laughs) Like he's, he's balked up. He's stronger. He's got more power. He's seeing the ball better. I would love to have him in the Trey Mancini role of like first base DH emergency outfielder that we that Mancini was in like at the beginning of 2022, because I think the back, especially if that's what he's focusing on, even though he said he doesn't want a DH, I feel like that's just because he knows his value would go down if that's the case. But I feel like he could be really valuable, whether it's for us or another team in that kind of role. And uh yeah, again, it's super tough because he is already producing. He's already there doing what we want Kyle Stowers to be able to do. So, and if you're going into a season expecting to contend, expecting to win games, maybe you lean on the guy that's already been doing it as opposed to a guy that you're hoping will do it. Yeah. And I just, I think when the issue with Santander, when he kept getting injured and wasn't getting those full seasons under his belt, I think we saw flashes of this, of what we just saw from him this year. Like 
Hayes, I think Hayes is who he is. He's going to be a 250 hitter who strikes out a lot and gets hurt all the time. Like I just think that's him. I think he's reached his peak. But Santander is finally, we saw flashes of it, and he's finally showed us who he is, I think. And I know a lot of us, myself included, have been trying to trade him for a while. It could still be an option. Again, I go back to like, the Mariners just keep popping up in my head all the time now because like, outside of Julio Rodriguez, it, I think the, uh, Kyle Lewis, apparently his knees are done. Taylor Trammell's not going to be an answer. I think a lot of Mariners fans and maybe even the Mariners organization might be kind of done with Jared Kalanick. So like, they certainly need outfield help. Santander could be a big trade piece for an organization like that. And I know, you know Santander doesn't want to play if he sticks around, which honestly, at this point, I've kind of changed my tune that I hope Santander kind of sticks. And there could be a role for him in, I know he doesn't want to play first base. I know he doesn't want to DH, but I kind of like the idea of you have Santander and Mountcastle, first base DH, and you're, I know you're going to have Adley mixing in there at DH too when he's not catching, but you find some situation there that works out and you can keep Santander's bat in that lineup you sign an outfielder or you bring up Colton Kowser and have Kyle Stowers, Cedric Mullins in the outfield. I think you can make all of this work and keep these big proven bats in the lineup at the same time. I don't know. The solution with Santander that I could live with is he primarily is DH in first base next year, but that's so he's not relegated to a full-time DH role. He plays that short right field at Camden Yards, which I think he can do. And I also liked that in some ballparks, Tropicana Field was one where we saw this a lot. And although Santander, I think, had a couple of uh, mishaps there one game this year, he would play left field rather than right. Um, Austin Hayes would move over to right, and it seemed like the move was basically Hayes covers a little more ground. He has a better arm. So you put him in right field at certain ballparks with Santander and left. So I think there are ways where you can manage it that Santander is only in the outfield in situations that are optimal to him. You know, you don't have him playing a cavernous right field in Oakland or something. He's playing right field at Camden Yards and he's DHing most of the time. I can live with that. So we'll go to Kyle Stowers now because Stowers is the guy that we were really anxious to see get to the major leagues this year. And he was really answering, I think the biggest call for him at Norfolk, which was to just continue to improve the swing decisions, not strike out as much. The results in the major leagues weren't always pretty, but he did show signs of improvement as he got more playing time late in the season. And you have to think right now that he's penciled in to at least be alternating between the three outfield spots next season. Um, Where do you guys see him fitting in next year? Just uh, regular playing time, please. Like I, I've seen a lot of comments too, especially when he came up like, Oh, his defense isn't that good. You don't want him in the outfield all the time. I think the defense is underrated. And like I said, we don't know how the organization grades him out, but he passed my eye test when he was in the minors. Like the arm is strong. He's got good range. He's a much better defender than I think a lot of people give him credit for. So I have my concerns about Stowers and the strikeouts, not going to lie, but, and overall concerns if that bat was even going to translate to the major leagues. But, you know, I think a lot of those concerns were alleviated with the growth that he showed at AAA. Walk stayed extremely high on base percentage through the roof strikeouts went down he's hitting the ball harder more line drives everything improved in triple a this year and so now it's just give him regular playing time because i think this guy is going to have a pretty successful major league career i agree he should be right in the mix i mean i feel like defensively i think he just had trouble adjusting to the 
double tier, triple tier stadiums with the just whatever the major league layout is. I'm sure, you know, he just had to get used to finding the ball at a certain point as opposed to when you do in the minors when it's more of a flat playing field. But I'm not concerned about his defense at all. That's for sure. And you, you saw the improvement from uh, at the plate. In August, he batted 250 with the 683 OPS. And then in September, he batted 280 with the 781 OPS. Yeah, he's going to strike out probably close to 30% of the time. But obviously, he did show improvement in that regard. And hopefully that continues. He's going to take his walks. He's going to have power. I think it's just a matter of him getting comfortable. And and he's you know he's 24 years old, and he just got his first taste in the major leagues. It doesn't always happen like Gunner and Adley were up two weeks of adjustment and I'm the player that you thought I would be. So, you know, this is a process. I think he'll probably start as a fourth outfielder DH option, you know, play three, four times a week and hopefully earn more time as the season goes on. Go over to Taron Vavra now. Based on the way that he was used at not just the major leagues, but in Norfolk this year, we saw him mix into the outfield quite a bit before he was promoted. Do you guys think he's really viewed more as a utility player at this point than potential starting second baseman or left fielder at the major league level? Yeah, I think he's got utility player written all over him, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I do think, you know, he could eventually end up being pretty solid that you feel confident putting him out there at second base when you want to use him there. I think it was a tough spot for him and a lot of these young guys to come at when a team's not expected to contend and all of a sudden they go on a 10 game winning streak, they're playing winning baseball, they're in a playoff hunt and you're making your major league debut. And you know, the game's a little bit faster in the majors than it is in the minors, especially like triple a, you know, the ball moves a little bit quicker. The the audience, the, the attendance is, is a lot bigger. There's just more pressure and I'm sure it just takes time to get used to playing in that atmosphere. And, Maybe that's why they didn't want to put him out there at second base too much. Maybe the outfield, he felt a little more comfortable. But I do think he could play a decent center field, left field, and stand there at second base and not not hurt you too much. And the bat, obviously, he's got a great eye. He hit a home run, so the power is a little bit less than nil. And uh, he's going to get you some base hits and be a solid ball player. He's got great baseball IQ, underrated base runner, just think he's a super solid player. And if this was the 2019, 2020 Orioles, we'd be super excited to have him playing every day for us and developing. Yeah. We'd be thinking he's an all-star lead off hitting second baseman on this roster. Um, didn't he also have a kid, like his first child? Yep. So, yep. so, I mean, you throw that in the mix too. Like, I mean, that during injury. Yeah. Yeah. Like all of that, I think plays a major, major role in this. Um, Oh, that's right. Cause they're like, Hell, your pregnant wife is due any day, but travel around the country while you wait for him to make his MLB debut. Um, anyway, I think Taron Vaver is exactly to a T who I thought he was going to be in the majors. Uh, super utility guy, a small sample size right now, but he's showing the smart at bats, walks a lot, gets on base, very little power, but is a pesky hitter that pitchers are going to hate to face. And I think he's going to have a very long major league career as this utility type guy. You know, he may not play 120, 130 games a season, but he's going to be effective for you. You know, he may not be the greatest defender. He's not going to be the greatest hitter, but he's going to be a guy that teams want to have around on their bench uh, for many, many years. So I, I love I love average just for that fact that he is he is someone who I think we nailed exactly right for the last two years that he was coming up through the system. 
Completely agree. And we'll wrap up the outfield discussion with Colton Calder, who has been mentioned a lot so far, but we haven't really had an in-depth discussion on him. First rounder for the Orioles in 2021, got off to a slow start at Aberdeen and such a slow start that we were being asked about on Twitter every single day for like a month. Um, And then he broke out of that slump, got promoted to Bowie, hit the cover off the ball, and then went to Norfolk in a small sample size, started off a little slow, but seemed to be picking things up at the end over his 22-game run there. Overall, a good season from him, but I'll start with Bob here. What do you want to see from Calder next year before you feel like you put him on the major league roster and give him regular bats in the outfield? Hmm. That's a good question. I think I just want to see some consistency. Um, you know, we talked about the strikeouts, how we're not concerned, but you want to see how that looks next year, see an improvement, at least there. I just want him to feel comfortable. I don't need him to be hitting the ball like he did in double A Bowie or anything like that, but just to feel comfortable. And when they think he's ready, I'm sure he will be ready because we saw with Gunner, they waited till. Well, maybe they finagled it a little bit with Gunner, but it seems like they do not care about what fans think, which I think is a good thing about when these guys should come up. They just care about when they feel the time is right. And yeah, I'm I'm assuming two or three months, if everything goes according to plan, he should be should be right there. So I'm thinking July, maybe maybe post All Star break, maybe he he shows up, especially if the team is performing like we hope and expect, then they'll ease him in. Like Nick said, he doesn't have to play every single day and have the the weight of the world on his shoulders. He'll be able to just get in the mix and slowly build up. And if he performs, then he gets more and more in play time as it goes on, which these are things that contending good ball clubs have to do. And we're not used to that. (laughs) Yeah. We don't need that moment with him where was, you know, you let Cedric Mullins run out by himself to center field to, you know, signal the change, but we don't need that with Colton Gowser. Um, but like last year was his first full season as a professional. I mean, it's he's got time. Let him bake a little bit in AAA. We know he's good. We know he's a fantastic hitter who walks an enormous amount, gets on base. So I think the two things that we heard early on in the year when he was struggling in Aberdeen, you know, how he was uncomfortable against lefties, and you know that that and the strikeout issue where that was you know almost thirty percent strikeout rate in high A. Went down to about 25% in AA, but went back up to over 30% in AAA. So, yeah, I, I, you do want to see a fewer, bit fewer strikeouts from Kowser. Uh, but at the same time, you look at that on base percentage, and it's you know nearly 400 for the season across three levels. That's fantastic. First full season of pro ball. We know he's got – he knows exactly what he was uncomfortable with in the minor leagues. Let him work on that. Let him get comfortable in that box against lefties. And we'll see you by the trade deadline, you know, by midseason, we'll see him up in the major leagues. And I think that's perfect. Ease him into this and let's, let's see what he's got. This was a pick that so many people hated yet. Now Colton Kowser is becoming just more and more beloved. I think on a weekly basis among like Orioles fans on Orioles Twitter, like Colton Kowser is that guy. And it's, it's just awesome to see people finally seeing how great of a hitter he is and great of a player he is. Yeah. I think Kowser, He's such an interesting hitter because I think if the mandate was just hit the ball, just hit the ball wherever you can, don't worry about power, he could probably go out and in his prime win a couple of batting titles, lead the league in hits a few times. 
but he hits the ball so hard that you know that that approach doesn't really tap into everything he's capable of doing. So there's going to be a little bit of a balancing act, I think, next year where you want to continue to see him hit for more power. You want to see some at home run power as much as you can get it in the early season months at Harbor Park. But you also want to see the strikeouts come down to a more consistent level. If you can get the strikeout rate, you know, at AAA, let's say down around 22%, keep the walk rate up. I would feel pretty good about where he is in his development. Yeah, and I'm, I agree with that. I was say I'm not even hugely concerned about his power numbers because everything else is just so good. Like when you go to the ballpark and watch him, you watch his eyes, you watch what his body does in that box. Like I, I saw it when I went saw him in Richmond. That was the first time I got to see him live and up close, and he blew me away. I don't think he got to hit that game, but he still blew me away with his performance in the box. Uh, and so if the power comes, great. But I, kind of that same deal as Adley. And if the power doesn't come, so be it. If you're going to hit 35, 40 doubles and get on base at a 375, 380 clip and have a WRC plus of, you know, 140, 150, whatever, then you're going to be a fantastic player and there'll be a home for you somewhere in that, that batting order. Yeah, he's another guy that just the game just seems to come second nature to him. Just seems like a natural, just like he was born on a baseball field and he never left uh, other than to do his Legos and stuff. But, uh, yeah, I mean, to me, it's, again, just going to be about the speed of the game for him to make that major league adjustment just because he comes from that small college. Obviously, we heard about the adjustments he had to make early in the season, adjusting to the grind of daily minor league baseball. So I think that's really the biggest thing for him. The skills are there. The just comfortability is there. It's just going to take a little bit of time to get up to speed, and I feel like he – He'll he'll be uh, definitely a fixture in the outfield for the Orioles until like maybe twenty thirty. Yeah. Wasn't that speaking of you know adjusting just the grind of the game? Wasn't that in John Mioli's piece about him? One of his pieces about him, it, like sleep. Wasn't that Colton Kowser? Was it's just a sleep yeah. issue? Learning how to go to the game, grind every day, and get sleep. I mean, little things like that that we don't even think about that have a major impact on these guys. That's something as simple as that. He has to learn how to sleep and get the right amount of sleep. Uh, it's just, it's fascinating. To, the more you learn about what these guys have to go through, it's phenomenal to understand. Now that once you're in the major leagues, doing what some of these, the best in the major leagues are doing and, and fully understand what, what level of talent and preparation it takes to get there. It's, it's mind blowing. I, I don't understand it. And I think it's, that's what makes baseball so fascinating to me. I think. Yeah. Not only do you have to get there, you have to stay there. You have to maintain that and improve even more. Yeah. So yeah, it's insane. And kudos to all of these players living this dream, even if they never make it. We'll wrap up with reported news of the Orioles 2022 Major League coaching staff, which will remain intact from last year with one new coach added to the mix. And that is Cody Assey, a 32-year-old who put, spent parts of five seasons in the Major Leagues, most of which came with the Philadelphia Phillies. Assey last year was the upper-level minor league hitting coordinator for the Orioles, and he is reportedly set to join the Orioles major league coaching staff as their offensive strategy coach. The Baltimore Sun and Masson Sports were on this last week, just before we came on the air. Um, This has not been officially announced by the Orioles yet, and there are not a lot of details out there just yet about what Assey's job is going to consist of on a daily basis. Of course, though, we expect he'll be working alongside Ryan Fuller, 
and Matt Borksalt to the Orioles hitting coaches on whatever plans are in place for these hitters the next year. So, Nick, uh, just based off of what we know right now about Ashley joining the Major League staff, what are your thoughts? He's younger than I am. I looked at that again today, and that is just unbelievable, mind-blowing. It is a shot to how old I am getting uh, another realization there. But, yeah, like he's got – this is another one of those instances where he was a guy who worked in what, upper levels of the minor leagues mostly, but I think he did a lot of work across the farm system. Um, and so he's familiar with all of these guys. Every hitter in the system he's familiar with. We got to talk baseball with him recently, him and Anthony Villa who got a promotion – I could sit and listen to them talk about baseball for hours. That was an unbelievable conversation. And I, I think that his familiarity with all of these guys, as we see more and more come up the ranks and reach the major leagues next year, it's all of that camaraderie there. They're sticking to the same plan, this same goal. No matter that you go up level to level, it's still the same goal. You're working with the same coaches uh, who are preaching the same ideologies. We saw it with Ryan Fuller now in the major leagues. You see someone like Cody Ashey who – which, by the way, I know one Orioles beat writer is probably going to have a field day when he thinks like there are possibly three hitting coaches essentially now on the major league roster. I can't wait for that article to come out. Luckily, I don't pay for that website, so I'm not going to read it, but it's going to come out, I'm sure. But, yeah, I think this just adds to that whole homogeny of – I don't know if that's the right word. It's late. I'm tired. But it's just <laughs> one, one, <laughs> one unit here. I think this is just another behind-the-scenes piece of all that. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, I agree. I mean – I don't know what exactly the job entails, but I'm sure there'll be plenty of interviews once it's formally announced and we'll get a little more details. And I'd love for us to be one of those interviews if uh, anyone's listening. But um, yeah, I mean, like you said, it was a great conversation we had with him and Anthony Villa and some other people uh, at our live show. And clearly smart baseball people put in important positions is a good thing. And maybe he's going to know the strengths and weaknesses of these guys that come up to help out the major league team. Maybe he's going to be a guy that can help onboard them and get them up to speed a little bit quicker than uh, otherwise. But I'm very curious to learn more. I, I'm happy with the move. Just, I don't know what it means. Yeah, I am as well. I, I think it's a good addition to the staff. And when we have the fuller picture of what he will actually do, it's going to be interesting to learn about that. Next week, we will be back with our off-season predictions. We always love to do predictions on this show. If you were at our live show, you actually heard us recap our preseason predictions, but you didn't hear all of them. So we'll recap some of the ones we missed the live show and then get into our predictions for the off-season, which, of course, is just going to start with, will Rugnet Odor be back next year, yes or no? Um, How many home runs is Tyler Nevin going to hit next year? We didn't talk about him. And if any patrons are listening, maybe Brandon Stoneberg can get a, a poll going and we can uh, do a bonus episode with uh, with your with your thoughts and opinions. And when we'll make fun of you on a separate uh, episode. And speaking of that, uh, if you've not joined our Patreon community yet, please consider doing so. Now that we're in November, we're getting close to the point where we're going to start having daily content again throughout the offseason. So you won't want to miss that. You could also join our WhatsApp group if you sign up for Patreon. It's a very robust group with a lot of discussion going on daily. It has not slowed down since the season ended. You can also check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for all the latest covers on the Orioles, Ravens, Terps, college sports, and more. Be sure to hop on the message board there to join the discussion with fellow readers of the site, as well as contributors. Things are busy on that site. 
there. And they're also busy on our Twitter, at BSL and the Birds. Follow us there for news throughout the week leading up to our episode. We will be back at our regular time next Monday night at 8 p.m. For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On the Birds. Get us back to to 10,000 followers. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. That'll do it for this week's episode of On The Verge. Be sure to check out our Patreon page where you can help show your support for the show and get bonus content, including monthly top 50 updates to our prospect list and daily game recaps during the season and much, much more.